Thank you, church. You may be seated. It's kind of strange without a microphone, but... We're going to give it a shot. There we go. If you have your copy of God's Word, please turn to the letter of 1 Peter. To the letter of 1 Peter. We find ourselves again in a passage having to do with submission to authority. I'll read the text from this morning. We'll be looking primarily at verse 15. I'll back up and start at verse 13. Please remember that these are the words of the Lord. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Let's pray. Father, this hour, as has been sung and has been prayed and spoken of this morning, is a time where needy people need manna from heaven and where you have asked a needy man to bring out of your word that manna. And I confess, as Jeremy has already prayed in his pastoral prayer, that I am incapable of doing this and your people are incapable of receiving your word apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. As we sang in the first song this morning, we have met to worship but we need the Spirit of God to let that manna fall all around, that our worship of you may continue, and that our lives this week may be worship to you, moment by moment. So, would you be with us this morning? Help me and help these your people to receive humbly the Word of God with meekness, for it brings to us the Word of salvation and the life that we need for this day. Amen. Well, if you've not been with us, we are in a section of 1 Peter where we are discussing the conduct of Christians. We are talking about the holy and righteous conduct of Christians. Christians ought to behave in a certain way. But I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of what we spoke of at the end of the message last week and what I will come around to again at the end of the message this week and that which you have sang multiple times this morning, that apart from the grace of God, our conduct could look good to the world, but it will never have lasting fruit. Our conduct might look very agreeable to the world, but it will never have lasting fruit. Our conduct and the good conduct which produces fruit that abides, that continues, that remains must come from a relationship with Jesus Christ. If we are to be the kind of people that James describes as he talks about the Christian life, we have to be the kind of people who are first experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis the grace that Romans describes. We need the grace that Paul talks about in Romans, and when that is a reality in our lives, we will manifest that Christian conduct that is described here in 1 Peter and also that the Apostle James describes. Well, today we look primarily at verse 15, 
for this is the will of God. And a question arises immediately. What is being spoken of here? God is giving us a reason for our obedience. Now, I don't know if you've thought about that, but God doesn't need to give us a reason for obedience. That word for, or some translations might say therefore or because, why is that there? Why do we have this connection to the previous two verses? God can demand the obedience of the Christian and not need to give any reasons for it. Yet here, he gives us an encouragement, a reason, something to spur us on to obedience. Parents, we might take a lesson here from God. Your children do not need a reason to obey you. However, our Heavenly Father oftentimes does give us reasons. It is not wrong to sit down and explain to your child why they need to obey in a certain circumstance. If you call out to your child and you say, stop, and that stop came because they were about to run into the street, they don't need a reason. They should obey immediately. Um, however, if you say stop, and it was because they were about to eat dad's cheesecake, um, well, why can't I have a bite too, dad? Maybe there's a time for a reason. As a matter of fact, in my studies this week, I went through the letter of 1 Peter, and I examined all of the imperatives, the commands of God in this letter. And believe it or not, about 50% of the time, in just 1 Peter alone, God gave a reason for our obedience and encouragement for us to obey. So take today, not so much as a command, there are no imperatives in this verse, but as an encouragement to the command from verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Remember, it is our responsibility, our job as Christians is to be subject. And today we find encouragement from the Word of God for why we are to do this. Well, my outline today is very simple and it follows the text itself. Today we're going to talk about the will of God. We're going to talk about doing good and silencing the ignorance. Very simple outline, just follows the pattern of the text, the will of God, doing good, and silencing the ignorance. Now, when we see the phrase, will of God, in the scriptures, your eyes and your ears ought to perk up a little bit. For this is the will of God. Is there gravity when you read that statement? There ought to be. We know that the scripture all reveals to us the will of God, but when we see that phrase, Peter is calling our attention to something that is important that we need to pay attention to. I heard a comedian one time who, um, when his uh, son was six years old, his son uh, tells this story, would enter the room and he would begin every sentence uh, by saying, now hear this. Okay, his son would walk into the room and say, now hear this. Now, if I just tell you the story and I don't tell you any more than that, already you want to, well, what did he say, right? Now hear this. The squirrel is eating out of the bird feeder again, okay? Uh, well, that's not that important, but there's something that ought to draw us to the text when we see the will of God. Question, how is what is described here the will of God? For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. How is what is described here the will of God? You may say, Chris, I'm not sure I understand the question. What do you mean? How is what descri is described here the will of God? Well, let me ask a uh, the question a different way. Was I asked my kids this at family worship last night. Was it God's will for Cain to kill Abel? 
Was it God's will for Cain to kill Abel? Now, as a good Calvinist, you ought be thinking, well, yes, because he who works all things according to the counsel of his will for the praise of his glory, Ephesians 1.11, he does whatever he pleases, right? But was it God's will for Cain to kill Abel? Well, in another sense, no, it was not. God is not the God of murder. He is the God of life. Therefore, it was not his will for Cain to kill Abel. God always gets what he wants, though. And so I want to ask you the question today, in what way is what we're going to read today and what we've already read the will of God? I want to talk to you about the way that the Scripture talks about the will of God, and it talks about it in two different ways. First of all, the Scripture talks about God's will in the sense of His will of decree. The Reformers called it His eternal will. This kind of will of God answers the question, what shall be done? What shall be done? This is from the First London Baptist Confession of Faith on God's decree. It says, God has decreed in Himself before the world was concerning all things, whether necessary, accidental, or voluntary, with all the circumstances of them, things leading to them, to work, dispose, and bring about all things according to the counsel of His own will, to His glory, yet without being charge, the chargeable author of sin or having fellowship with any therein. God's eternal will is in essence what Pharaoh Ramses from the Charlton Heston version of the Ten Commandments movie would often say. Thus shall it be written, thus shall it be done. That is the eternal or decreative will of God. It is His will that, as my brother mentioned when he read uh, the text for us earlier in the service, always infallibly comes to pass. The scripture talks about God's will as His will of decree, His will that always infallibly comes to pass. But the Bible talks about the will of God in another way. It speaks of His will in regards to what is revealed from us based on His character. It's often called His moral will. This deals with what should be done, not what shall be done, but what should or ought be done. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now we know that Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4.3 there is not talking about the decree of God. We know that Christians, as soon as they are converted, are not immediately sanctified. Sometimes they fledge around all of their lives, growing in grace and falling back into sin and making progress slow but steady. God's will is that we be sanctified that we grow up into sanctification, but it doesn't happen immediately. Three times, excuse me, from Acts 17, verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. He commands all people everywhere to repent. It's God's will that everyone repent. But does everyone repent? No, they do not. It is decreed who will repent. God has chosen those who will repent and believe in Him. But though God commands morally that everyone repent, that everyone bow the knee to Him, not everyone does. These two examples show us the will of God 
though they don't necessarily come about at least immediately. Theologian John Frame said, God does not intend to bring about everything he values, but he never fails to bring about what he intends. I heard someone say one time, does C.S. Lewis have this affection for witches, right? Well, I mean, why would you ask that question? Well, he wrote a story where there was a witch in it, right? Well, just because he wrote a story with a witch in it doesn't mean that he has an affinity for witches. That's part of his story. That's part of what he's decreeing, but that doesn't necessarily mean that this is what's morally agreeable to him. God writes his story in the same way. God does not intend to bring about everything he values, but he never fails to bring about what he intends. Now, Chris, why does that matter for verse 15? This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Because we need to know when we see a phrase like the will of God in Scripture, which of these kinds of wills that the Bible talks about in relationship to God is the scripture referring to. In verse 15, this is the will of God, that by doing good... Now, wait a sec. We know that Christians don't always do good. We know that it is God's will that He commanded them morally to do good, but it doesn't always happen that Christians, from the moment of their conversion, always do good. This is a will of God's command. And why does that matter? Because we're in a passage that's dealing with the will of God as it's commanded to not just the Christian, but to the state as well. This, when I studied this this week, changed a lot about my perspective on the way Christians today handle the government and the Christian. You see, when we deal with the life of the Christian, we always say, God has commanded you to do X, Y, or Z. But then when we deal with God's will for the state... We deal with the state as though, well, God's ordained the state. He's decreed the state, but He hasn't made commands on them. That is not true. Right here we see that God has a will, not just for the Christian, but for the state as well. God can make demands on not just Christians, but fathers, on business owners, on slaves, on servants. God can make commands on elders. God can make commands on Broadly across all of society, I command that everyone repent. Even to the unbelieving, he makes demands and commands. Why are we so shocked that though in his decree, he's ordained in America, we have a certain government structure with certain laws and certain things going on right now. The word of God still makes demands and commands on those who serve in government. We should not be surprised by this. And... As I mentioned last week, it is the Christian's job to disciple the nations. It's our job to educate them on what God's will is for them as servants of God, as God's deacon in a government place. There's another reason I think it's important to know that we're dealing with a will of command here. The Christian's heart should be a heart of, I want what should be done to be what shall be done. I want what should be done to be what shall be done. So interesting. God works things out, all things according to the counsel of His will for His glory. We just happened to be in the catechism this morning where we read together the prayer that our Lord Jesus taught us. And in that prayer, we pray to our Father that His name be hallowed, 
that his kingdom come and that his will be done. Now, which will are we praying? Are we praying that God's infallible, never failing, going to happen no matter what will happen here on earth as it is in heaven? No, because God's decree happens in heaven and on earth always. It never fails. What are we praying? We're praying that what God has commanded that always happens in heaven happen down here on earth. The Christian is praying, I want to see what should be done shall be done. I want what you desire, what you value, God, to happen right now in my life, in my community, in my church. When I come to a text like verse 15, I want what he describes here to become a reality. And this is where it lands on us, brothers and sisters, as an encouragement, as something that ought to exhort us. This is God giving us a reason. This is God saying, I've commanded this, so be encouraged and go do it. I want your kingdom now. I want your will now. Lord, I want your should be to be your shall be. Well, what is his will? That we do good. And he's described in verse 13 what that good is. Being subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So what does he mean here when he says do good? In the previous weeks when we've been together, we've talked about the submission of the Christian. Two weeks ago, I dealt just with that Greek word hupotasso and what it means for the Christian to submit. We all have a sense of what good behavior towards the government looks like. You're respectful, you're obedient insofar as you can be to the government. You're humble, you're meek, you're not arrogant towards them. We all have a sense of what that looks like. But I alluded to this last week. How do we also make sense of the righteous saints of old from the Old and New Testament who disobeyed their God-given authorities and yet still, many of which are in Hebrews 11, the hall of the saints of the righteous, and still called righteous. Let's just do a little review for those of you who weren't with us, and we're all on the same page at that point. God's will is that we submit, and I talked about voluntary, joyful taking of our place, that's what submission is, to the authorities that He has established. The authorities He has established are the unique offices of government in each society. Here we see emperors or kings and governors. And the authorities are not the individuals themselves. Remember, we have a president we're to submit to, but the man, Joe Biden, we have no uh, responsibility to, su to submit to apart from the office that God ordained that he holds. From Hosea 8.4, I found this interesting this week. This is from the NIV translation. The people of the northern kingdom of Israel who had grown into deeper and deeper forms of rebellion against God, the Lord says of them through Hosea, they set up kings without my consent. They chose princes without my approval. Did God decree that those kings would take those offices? Yes. Was it His command? No, it was not. Just like it was not His command that Cain should go kill his brother. <laughs> The government of the United States and every other governor, government for that matter, still some review, is commanded by God to praise those who do good and to punish those who do evil. God has a moral will for the government. 
Good and evil are terms defined only by the Word of God and not the authorities themselves. They don't get the dictionary. This is right here in the Word of God. It is the job of the church, as I mentioned a moment ago, to disciple the nations and educate the authorities on God's will for good and evil. Now, just to make sure we know our context, a little civics lesson. This will be good review for our homeschooling kids. America is technically supposed to be a republic. That means that lex is rex. The highest authority in our land is the law, and everybody, even the government, is to be subject to it. Submission then for the Christian should look like our joyful, voluntary subjection to the law, even at times when it frustrates us, like that notorious speed limit. The law is created, enacted, and supported by three branches of government. That's the legislative, comprised of either on the federal level or in the, gov- uh, um, the uh, state level, a House and a Senate, an executive, that would be a president or a governor, and then the judicial or appellate court system. According to Peter then, our government should create and uphold laws that encourage good and punish evil. Amen. Our government should create and uphold laws that encourage good and punish evil. And if they did, Christians would still have antsy hearts, but it would be a lot easier to just kind of go along with things. But how are we as Christians to submit in an imperfect world? I'd like to give you four ways in which Christians can submit in an imperfect world and we see examples of the biblical characters throughout Scripture doing these four things and still being called righteous. We can either refuse, we can rear or educate, we can run, and we can rejoice. We can refuse, rear, run, or rejoice. Let's look at the word refuse. If the state commands what God forbids, we should refuse. From Daniel 3.18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego responding to the state commanding them to bow down to the golden statue. They said, no, we will not bow down, O king, and our God will save us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are looked at as righteous and holy characters in the Bible. And they resisted tyrannical overreach from their government who was not encouraging good and punishing evil. And yet the Bible still calls them righteous. Christians, we have an allowance in the scripture in certain cases to refuse the government. What if the state forbids what God commands? From Acts chapter 4, we looked at this passage last week. So the council called the disciples in and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. There was a higher authority. And remember, we talked about this last week, every authority that God has created is under authority. 1 Corinthians 15 even talks about at the end of all things, in a sense, Christ himself subjecting all things to the Father. There is a hierarchy in our universe, and it is a good thing, and it is glorious. 
And so we as Christians can, in a righteous way, with respect and dignity and meekness, refuse our government when they overstep their God-given authority and still not sin against our God. Secondly, we're encouraged through the scriptures to rear or disciple the state. Listen to this from 2 Kings chapter 12. You remember Jehoiada the priest taught Joash the king for years and years. Joash was six years old when he was raised up to be king. And yet the priesthood had a responsibility to educate the king on how the people of God were to be governed. Christians, we too can take this place as we seek to appeal to our government to live by the standards that God has revealed in His Word. From Mark chapter 6, the life of John the Baptist. Herod had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying, listen to this language, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He made a direct appeal from God's word that the government was stepping over their bounds, that he was taking an exception that was not allowed to him. We looked weeks ago in Deuteronomy at what, God, uh, what allowances God gave for the king. Number one, he was to uphold God's law, not to commit adultery. Number two, he wasn't to gather for himself many wives, which is what Herod appears to have been doing here with his brother Philip's wife. Paul spoke before the proconsul in Acts 13 and Felix and Hephaestus, Agrippa, and potentially even Caesar in Acts 23 through 25. We as Christians are commanded to preach the gospel to every living thing. Therefore, we should appeal to our legislators to change unjust laws. By the way, a Christian can, and if God encourages them to, should run for public office. We have been brainwashed for years and years and years that there must be an indissoluble separation between the church and the state. But this is not revealed to us anywhere in God's Word. There's no prohibition for a Christian taking a government office. You might remember from the Old Testament, Obadiah was serving under the wicked King Ahab. And he was responsible for hiding the prophets of God in the caves while Elijah was doing his work to prophesy to King Ahab. A Christian can hold a political office and can bring about good through that political office. Thirdly, we can run. There are countless examples, as I'm sure you know, of fleeing persecution in the Bible. Jesus in Matthew 10, 23. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. Now, Chris, that's a narrative passage. And it was describing the disciples as they were commanded to go out and to preach the gospel. And if they were persecuted, they could flee. Yes, but we see here that it's permissible from our Lord to flee persecution and the disciples did it all through the book of Acts as they were persecuted in Acts chapter 8 when the great persecution arose in Jerusalem. The disciples fled in 1 Samuel 26. Saul commanded David to return to him and David ran. He had a direct command from his king and yet he turned and he ran knowing that Saul's tyrannical overreach had disqualified him from obedience in this case. Finally, and this one is so compelling, Christians, we're to rejoice. We are to rejoice. We can refuse, we can rear, we can run, but most importantly, we ought to rejoice. From Acts chapter 5, 
So the disciples went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. You remember in Acts 5, they had been beaten for their refusal to obey the authorities and stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they praised God because they had been persecuted. From Hebrews 10, 34. You showed sympathy to the prisoners and you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property knowing that you have for yourselves a better and lasting possession. Christian, I ask you today, do you have a better and lasting possession? You might say, yes, it is decreed that I have a better and lasting possession, but in the place of your heart, do you sense that that is true? If you were to walk home today and someone had broken in and taken your things or your house was burned to the ground, would you sense I have a better and lasting and abiding possession in heaven, something that is better? We ought to be a rejoicing people. What's going to cause the world to turn their heads and marvel at our good behavior? It is this character and quality of joy. And this is a supernatural kind of joy, brothers and sisters. What I'm revealing to you today from the Word of God is not something that comes from us. It is supernatural. The weapons of our warfare, the joy that we possess, and the way that we carry ourselves before the magistrate, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they do have divine power to destroy strongholds. The gospel that we preach can change the hearts and minds of those even in government offices that we go to. Some other biblical options. This is from that book that I mentioned last week, The Divine Right of Resistance by Philip Kaiser. I don't have time to go into all of these today, but some other things that might be helpful to talk about as you discuss when and where Christians can legitimately resist or oppose tyranny. We can rebuke authorities. We can openly protest, peacefully protest, mind you, and that's a Christian definition of peacefully protest. Um, We can cry out against the authorities. We can cry out in the street. We can engage in certain forms of deception, as the Hebrew midwives did against Pharaoh. We can hide. We can have lawsuits against our government. We're prohibited from lawsuits among the brothers, but we're not prohibited from lawsuits against the state. We can appeal to lesser magistrates, and going into the doctrine of the lesser magistrate would take some time, but it would be well worth it. We can turn wicked rulers on one another, Kara and I were talking about this earlier in the week. She was asking the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And you remember how Paul turned them against one another because of their eschatological perspectives, right? It's a righteous thing to do. Be shrewd as a serpent. We can engage in imprecatory prayers. And don't forget this one. We could go the extra mile. If a Roman soldier demanded that you carry his things for a mile, what did Jesus say? Go ahead and take it a second mile. Heap burning coals on their heads. These are ways in which we as Christians can have good behavior before the state and yet still resist tyrannical overreach. We can carry ourselves before the government in a righteous and holy way and still resist that tyrannical overreach. Lastly, we, by doing good, silence the ignorant. 
By doing good, we silence the ignorant. From the life of our Lord Jesus, from Mark chapter 14. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. From the life of our Savior himself, as an objective observer, even somebody who doesn't know Christ, you can read the story of the way that the Pharisees and the council treated Jesus, and you can see, I don't know that the way that's described doesn't look like they're treating him fairly, right? It turns the world's heads to see our good and righteous behavior. And brothers, we can read this story. We can see the animus. We can see the hatred. We can see the ignorance and the foolishness described here from verse 15. There are no solid grounds for accusation from the heathen when we do good. Several years ago, Um, I've told many of you before that I teach, I have in the past taught an abstinence curriculum in the public schools. Um, That is a sexual abstinence curriculum in the public schools. Um, I did that for about 13 years, um, primarily in Anderson County. Um, I taught at a private Christian school at one point in Knoxville. And on the second day I went in, uh, they called me in the principal's office and said, um, hey, we had a parent call and complain yesterday. I said, okay, what about? And they said, well, that you were teaching abstinence. And I said, okay, sounds good. And uh, they're going to give you a phone call. I said, all right, sounds good. So um, later that day, I was working outside on a mulch job and I did get a phone call. Uh, My phone rang and all I saw on the screen was California Berkeley. And I was like, oh, no, here we go. <laughs> know a little bit more about this parent now. <laughs> okay. Um, so I uh, had a mother on the phone with me uh, talking about her son that was in the class um, the day before. She was very upset. Um, she said a lot of things that I didn't get a chance to respond to. Um, Aaron was actually working with me that day, and he was just hee-hawing because I, I, it's not, I, 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 I couldn't get a word in. Um, she just... Kept talking. Um, Occasionally, I'd get a shot across the bow. She said, don't you people in Tennessee realize that abstinence doesn't work? And I said, ma'am, it's crazy. Actually, it works 100% of the time. (laughs) She didn't like that very much. Um, However, at the end of the conversation, and I hadn't been able to say very much, um, she said, well, before I hang up on you, I need you to know this. Um, You've carried yourself in a responsible way, and I appreciate you being respectful to me. And then she hung up. Um, this is the good behavior that we should have before the foolish and the ignorant. This is the kind of behavior that's going to turn their heads and leave them no excuse. This is the will of God for us in Christ Jesus that we have that kind of behavior that all that ignorant talk that God has to put up with, it silences it. It silences it. Our behavior ought to put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And brothers and sisters, Let's just go ahead and accept the fact that we are going to suffer for our faith in Christ. We are going to suffer for our faith in Christ. In 2 Timothy, indeed, all who want to live in a godly way in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Listen to how well that fits into the verse that we're reading right now. Indeed, all who want to live in a godly way in Christ Jesus 
will be persecuted. You want to come underneath God's command to make His should be, His shall be, to have this kind of good behavior, then you better get ready to get persecuted for it. Peter's going to say a little bit later on in chapter 3, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Listen to the verse that follows. For, he gives another reason. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all time, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Beloved, the submission and the good works that God has called us to is nothing that he hasn't done himself already. He has already done and gone before us and pioneered this way. Now, our good behavior will not bring about anyone's justification. Christ secured that with his good work alone. But isn't it interesting that back up in verse 12, we read that the Gentiles, the lost, might see our good deeds and one day their hearts soften, they hear the gospel, they get saved, Christ's work justifying them completely. How as little Christ's in this world, our good behavior has that kind of gospel impact. It has power to soften the hearts of the unbelieving. The gospel being the seed planted in their souls that saves them. God may use our good behavior towards the lost as an agent to prepare them for hearing the good news and being saved. In order to do these good deeds, beloved, we must get close to Christ. We must get close to Jesus on a daily basis. We must be with our Jesus in what he calls the secret place. C.S. Lewis said about this suffering that I've been describing, there's no wisdom or virtue in seeking unnecessary martyrdom or deliberately courting persecution. Yet it is nonetheless the persecuted or martyred Christian in whom the pattern of the master is most unambiguously realized. Good behavior softens the heart, keeps burning coals on the heads of the unbelieving, prepares them for the gospel. Church, we are trying to build a kingdom. Why is Paul so concerned, excuse me, why is Peter here so concerned with our good behavior towards the government? Why is he so concerned? Because we're building a kingdom. And the lost can look at us and say, oh, you want a kingdom, huh? So does that mean you're here to take over? What was Jesus accused of? You're going to establish your own kingdom. You're just a usurper. You're an anarchist. This is not what Jesus came to do as he submitted himself to the government and not what we're called to do. God has placed over this present age divine authorities that we are charged to submit and come under. And for this task, as I mentioned, we need Christ. Now Jesus' kingdom will come and His reign will be established on this earth and it will be established through the proclamation of the good news. Remember when you go home this week, the weapon that you have that will bring life to your neighbors, that will call their deadness to new life is the gospel of Jesus. And that daily communion with Jesus is vital. Here is Lewis again. 
We don't have to try to climb up into the spiritual life by our own efforts. It has already come down into the human race. If we will only lay ourselves open to the one man in whom it was fully present and who, in spite of being God, is also a real man, he will do it in us and for us. One of our own race has this new life. If we get close to him, we shall catch it from him. This is what he calls the good infection. Get close to Christ, beloved. How do we create this good behavior that is so eye-catching to the world, that is so brilliant and marvelous? It is in our communion with Jesus. That's why Peter began with the indicatives of the Christian life. And now we're on to the imperatives. Please do not forget the first chapter and a half of 1 Peter because this is the food for our souls that brings us into communion with Christ and gives us that encouragement for those good works. I want to say in conclusion that you have been called to do good in submitting to our government. This means respect and honor to the offices established by God. It means refusing submission when those authorities invert God's will or when they step out of their lane. And there's lots of ways we could talk about the authorities stepping out of their lane. Roe v. Wade is one of them. The Supreme Court of the United States does not have a right to make laws. Therefore, Roe v. Wade is not a law. It is a Supreme Court opinion and has no authority over us as Christians or anybody else in America for that matter. A woman has no legal right in the United States over the inhabitant of her womb to murder it. She does not. They have never made a law. And if they did, it would be contrary to the law of God and therefore we should oppose it. We should refuse submission when authorities invert God's will or step out of their lane. Submitting to God also means using our status as citizens to rear them in the word of God. Jeremy and I have in the past had opportunities to go before the city council in Knoxville. We'd like to start doing that again and we'd like to do it here in Anderson County. We'd love to have any of you who want to come with us come and during an open forum time that we hope that they have, um, we'll be able to speak to the magistrates and encourage them that we're praying for them, we love them, and thus saith the Lord, this is God's will for you. This is God's command. It also may mean running, if need be, to more strategically establish the kingdom. Now, at this point, it seems like the rest of the world is running to Tennessee. Um, that may change one day. We may have to think strategically about fleeing even our own area. I hope that's not the case. Finally, God is pleased when we do good and leave the enemy no grounds for accusation. We honor him most when we live according to truth, no matter what it costs. Now, I'll remind you before I close, different Christians are going to see this different ways. There may be Christians who refuse obedience. Elijah refused to submit to King Ahab and his wicked rule. Obadiah continued on working for King Ahab and his wicked rule. In his conscience, he was bound to a certain kind of service and God used him in that service for good. Let's not look down on those who have a difference of opinion in some of these areas. If they don't feel like there's a place for the Christian to speak to the state, we can bear with them in love. If they don't feel like there's a way to run, but they must stay, they must stand their ground when accused by the state, even falsely, let us bear with them in love. Remember, as Christians, 
we hold together a church through that one attribute of God, through love. The whole world knows that we are the disciples of Jesus because we're bound together in love, because we love one another. Let us be a people that love one another and let us take every lawful means that we can to appeal to our state to be all that God calls it to be as we exemplify to them everything that God has called us to be. Let us pray together. Father, it was your decree that we be here today, that we be in this passage, that we be encouraged from your word, that we sing, that we worship, that we listen to prayers. But your word also makes demands on us. And to the Christian who is close to Jesus, those demands are life and breath and joy. How the Old Testament saints would say, oh, how I love your law. God, we want to be a people that love your commands. We want to be a people that inside of us desire that your will, as is always done in heaven, be done in our lives here on earth. That your should be done will be what shall be done. Please, create in us clean hearts. Remind us that clean hearts come from looking to Jesus and that that communion with him is invaluable. We want to catch that new life that he has and carry it into the world. We want to do good, Lord, but we also want to think critically about what your word says, about the ways in which we can do good and still oppose the tyranny that we see in our day. And as we look even more to this in the coming days, give us wisdom, give us discernment, give us grace as there are many who take different perspectives on these different issues. Help us to love them and be charitable towards them, bearing with them. Lastly, Lord, I do pray for each of my brothers and sisters here today, every man, every woman that is in Christ, that you would so fill them with love for you and a zeal for you that this week they would each visibly experience and see someone in the world turning their head and asking questions about why they have so much joy and hope. Please do that. We want our lives to glorify you. We know that it's your will. You've commanded it here that we put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Help us to do that, Lord. May this week we see examples of just that, putting to silence the ignorance of those foolish people in the world. Lord, as we go to eat um, and prepare this room, even in the activity of clearing this room of chairs and preparing it with tables, May our hearts continue to praise you. Even as we eat and drink or whatever we do for the rest of the day, may we give glory to God. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for going before us and pioneering the way, showing us what it looks like to live as the perfect man. Sanctify us, Lord. Make us men and women like Jesus. Amen.